Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Mark Tersek. Mark is the former CEO of the Nature Conservancy. And prior to that, he spent 24 years at Goldman Sachs. He's the author of the Washington Post bestseller, Nature's Fortune, How Business and Society Thrive in Nature. Currently, he publishes a well-known newsletter called The Instigator that is available on Substack. And he's an advisor to several companies, startups, institutional investors, and NGOs. Thank you, Mark. Uh, welcome. How's it going in New York? Uh, Washington, D.C. All good here and nice to be doing this conversation with you, Jonas. Thank you again, Mark. I've been looking forward to this all day long. So I've read your background, very interesting, uh, teaching English in Japan to running the Nature Conservancy. Could you give us a short introduction about yourself and how did your career progress? Okay, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, a humble uh, but good background. Ground. Um, I was very fortunate and got a scholarship to a boarding school. That was a lucky break in my life. From there, I went to Williams College. After college, as you noted, I, I had never really been abroad and I thought I should have some international experience. So I moved to Japan and stayed for three years. Then I went to business school and then I graduated from business school. I'm old back in 1984 and I joined Goldman Sachs. It was a very good time to start on Wall Street. The Business was a much smaller business than in general, and Goldman was a small private partnership. The business kind of really started growing quickly when I joined, and so I did my best. I worked hard, right place, right time, and I had a, I had a very good career on Wall Street, I think. I worked with good people for good clients. I think I learned a lot. So after about 20 years of that, I was thinking, boy, this has been great, but now I would like to do something more important. And I had a, a not very well-developed idea that I would become an environmentalist. My boss at the time, Hank Paulson, he went on to be secretary treasurer uh, under Bush. Hank knew more about the environmental world than me. When he heard about my plans, he said, oh, those aren't very good plans. I have a better idea. Stay at Goldman Sachs and build an environmental effort for the firm. This was in 2005. So Hank was ahead of his time thinking that it made sense for businesses and especially financial firms to really invest in, in environmental matters, especially climate. So I did that for a couple of years. It was a great experience. And the whole idea was it makes business sense, we thought, for Goldman Sachs and for our clients to pursue big environmental opportunities. So it went well. I learned a lot in that, op- in that experience. Then the Nature Conservancy job opened. No one thought they would ever hire a CEO from Wall Street. Even I thought it was a long shot, but I tried my best to get the job. And fortunately, I did. That was in 2008, I joined the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy was a great, great global NGO before I joined, and it will be a great NGO now today after I was there. So I don't want this to sound like it's all about me. The team of people there were incredible, our partners, our supporters, all great. But while I was there, um, the timing was good. My Wall Street experience was a pretty good experience to drive a lot of growth and new strategies there. We can talk about that if you want. So I worked at the Nature Conservancy for 11 years. It was a great experience. And then I left. You know, you can only do these things for so long. 
And today I try to draw on those two experiences. First, working at Goldman as a business person. Second, working at the Nature Conservancy as an environmentalist. I try to bring them together to be a champion for private sector-led environmental problem solving. Again, my timing is pretty good. There's a lot of that kind of activity underway right now. So that's what, I, that's what I'm doing. Thank you, Mark, for the great introduction. One thing I was very impressed when I was reading your book is that you, you try not to stay in the finance ivory tower. You go on the ground, you speak to the experts, and you try to figure out uh, all the different technical niches. One of the things that you did at the Nature Conservancy was uh, you set up NatureVest, which is more like an internal investment bank for conservation finance. So could you tell us more about it? Sure. Yes, I had a hand in that, but again, it was a team effort and a lot of great colleagues and supporters made it happen. I sure didn't do it by myself. The idea with NatureVest was really interesting. Most nonprofits, NGOs, fund themselves exclusively with donations or grants. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but there's a limit to how much capital you can raise that way. TNC is still the biggest environmental NGO. Now operating budgets more than $800 million a year. So we were very good at raising capital to do stuff, but it's but I was ambitious for the organization. I thought we should do as much as possible. And then I remembered my corporate finance 101 training at business school and at Goldman Sachs. And the way companies finance, of course, is they lever up their equity. That's their most expensive form of capital. They lever that up with debt. Hopefully you do it in a prudent way. And that way you have more capital and you have a lower cost of capital. So I said, we should do that too. Now, the Nature Conservancy had and still has a double A credit rating. So we could have just gone out and borrowed money. But I then argued, again, with my team, it's not just me. No, wait a second, though. We're providing something beyond just a business return. We're providing important environmental gains. So what we tried to do with NatureVest is set ourselves up so that we could go to prospective capital providers and say, listen, please lend this project or this initiative money we will pay you a very high rate of return. Some of that return will be financial and some of it will be environmental. And we want to be held accountable in the most rigorous way for both the environmental and financial outcomes. But please, therefore, since our environmental outcomes will be so robust, charge us less for the financial return. Because if you're in an environmental business, that advantage of having lower cost capital, capital that costs less than market terms, is an important advantage. So the NatureVest team did that in partnership, of course, with NGO TNC people across the organization. We did a whole bunch of really cool deals. The only thing that um, maybe we overlooked a little bit at the beginning was that there's a reason why investment banks have big sales and trading operations to raise capital, because it takes expertise and it takes relationships. And while TNC had great relationships with providers of philanthropic capital, we were a little bit new to building relationships with providers of investment capital. So our projects, we did a bunch of them the way I just described. They were all very successful, and they allowed us to do more things. I was right. We had more capital. It was a lower cost, but it was inefficient. It took us a long time. So then we said, okay, what we'll try to do also is partner with financial institutions who have that capability of, of reaching investors, being credible with them. And one example, so, so that, I think that was a smart innovation. And so one of the things we did just before I left is partner with the private equity firm, Renewable Resources Group, often referred to as RRG. They're sort of a special PE firm because they, they focus on natural capital in a way that's quite aligned with the Nature Conservancy or my current work. So we partnered with them. We were both general partners in a private equity fund. So far as I know, no NGO has ever done that before. We raised together a billion dollars to have a water fund. The idea is 
I'm simplifying a bit, but it's to buy mostly agricultural assets, change the water practices so that two things happen, conservation outcomes improve and also financial outcomes improve. And that partnership was really well received by the marketplace. So those are the sorts of things we were trying to do in NatureVest. I think it's still early days, but if if you step back and think about environmental challenges or climate challenges in particular, One aspect of that is really salient is we have to do big things and we have to do them fast. So again, there's nothing wrong with the traditional nonprofit model of raising money from donors only, but it takes long and we wanted to do big things quickly. So having this additional investor provided capital from NatureVest really helped a lot. And then even better if we could argue that the financial terms should be superior for us since we were providing environmental returns even better. So that was the idea. You mentioned a lot of interesting points. Uh, one of them was your cooperation with a private equity firm. Uh, so David Rubenside often he, uh, jokingly refers to private equity as the highest calling to mankind. I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> if we, we, we will uh, agree with that. And maybe David would not agree with that. But you recently wrote an article on, on the instigator, on how private equity can get involved in it. And I've been trying to convince some of my friends who are in the, uh, private equity to get more interested in climate finance. They're a bit skeptical. So what would you say to private equity folks? Thank you, Joe. Thank you for reading my news, newsletter, by the way. And for everybody out there, it's on Substack, my newsletter. It's called The Instigator. Instigator comes out every other week. It's about these topics. It's free. Please subscribe and give me feedback. Basically, on the one hand, I think it's really great that so many public companies and institutional investors are getting behind ESG and making climate progress. Now, we could criticize it a little bit because there's a lot of room for additional improvement. But mostly, I think that's a very positive development that's underway, and it gives me some reason for optimism. But if you look around the landscape of the big financial players, I think private equity hasn't really distinguished itself very much yet. It's not to say they're doing nothing. Most private equity firms now have climate funds. They have ESG reports. It's not like they're doing nothing, but I think they should and could do much more. You know, for example, in my newsletter, I said, you know, why are we just asking public companies to have net zero targets and disclose about all that and holding them accountable? Why not private equity funds at the parent company level of private equity, but also for their portfolio companies? By the way, one reason this really matters is because companies are under pressure from environmental critics. This is especially true in the fossil fuel sector. You'll see a lot of big uh, oil gas players, for example, selling their big assets, their fossil intense assets to private equity. And so if public companies are held to a higher standard than private and private equity or other private players own more of these important assets, we're going to lose progress. So my proposal was that private equity should and could do a lot more. And I spell it out in the instigator. It's still available. Now, why don't they just do that? Well, it's a little bit tricky for private equity because the one thing private equity is great at, and they're great at it. I mean, there's a few things, but one of the things they're really good at is maximizing IRR internal rates of return. And all young bankers know how this works. You you do your model, and to the extent you can lower costs, raise revenue, minimize capital spending, that's a great way to maximize cash flow generation and IRRs. Further, private equity firms are sort of incentivized, some of these things are beginning to change, to not hold their assets very long. Because if if you sell, if you monetize the investment, the longer you hold it, your IRR will tend to go down. So private equity has been designed to not think about incremental things that might raise costs in the near term, even if they ultimately raise uh, value. 
It's beginning to change, though. And the, and the only reason it's beginning to change is they are limited partners. So I said private equity is good at one thing. IRR is the other thing they're really good at is raising capital. I mean, these private equity firms are getting so big. And as long as they can raise capital, they're going to say, well, our clients are happy. But the clients, thank goodness, although we should push them to do more. They're institutional investors of various types, pension funds, endowments who invest in private equity firms. They should insist on much better ESG disclosure and, and more ambitious goals. And I think we're beginning to see that. But we should all push harder for that, I think, because finally about private equity, so much talent, right? So many smart people, so much capital, so much ability to move quickly. It could really unlock a lot of environmental progress. So, you know, TPG under, by the way, with Hank Paulson's cooperation, they have a huge climate fund right now. I bet it will do good things. All that talent and capital will do good things. But I would just say to them and their peers, also direct all of that talent and energy and capital to your mainstream business. That'd be my big point. Regarding environmental return, what are the main impact metrics that these investors should look at? I know that yeah. uh, you've, you've been working with a natural capital project at Stanford with uh, Dr. Gretchen Daly, and she's yeah. got a lot of interest in research on that. And also, you, you wrote an article on the instigator where, for example, uh, natural coastal uh, protection would be 15 times cheaper than a man-made one. Could you please elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah, it's a little bit. And in 2018, whilst you were working for the Nature Conservancy, you wrote about some scientists that discovered that the median cost of building a man-made breakwater in Cancun would be 15 times greater than restoring a natural coral reef, which provides nearly the same function. So it's a great question to talk about how do you evaluate the potential for investments in natural capital and how do you monitor rigorous, if the world has gotten so good at monitoring financial performance and holding people accountable, there are the occasional screw-ups, but mostly it works very well. So can we do the same thing with investments in natural capital? I think it's always going to be more complicated. There will never be anything as simple and uh, standard as gap financial statements for investments in natural capital. So then some people say, oh, well, it just can't be done. And I would say, no, it can be done. It takes a little bit more work, that's all. In a NatureVest deal, I mean, NatureVest is still plugging away, but I've been gone for two years. But back when I was there, we would have, of course, if we were raising capital from investors, we would have financial projections. Okay, the financial projections would look just like normal financial projections. But then we would also have milestones for environmental progress, whatever the nature of the program was, so that we could, I mean, I as the boss, I wanted to monitor, of course, the progress of our projects, but that also could allow natural capital investors to monitor the achievement of the environmental returns I promised. I think the world is making a lot of progress there, but it, it's complicated. And you're correct. Gretchen Daly and the Natural Capital Project, that's a lot of what they do. I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to get there. It's never going to be as simple as financial accounting, but it's quite doable, full stop. Before we speak more about philanthropic capital or institutional investor capital, I'd like to redirect the conversation towards public financing. And you've written a lot about Biden's infrastructure plans. What do you think should be done next? I mean, not just for physical infrastructure, but also for green infrastructure. Is it tax credits? Is it more state revolving funds? Is it different regulation? Well, what do you think should be? Yeah, it's a, really, it's a really good question. And the first thing I would say about that, Jonas, is I'm glad you're bringing up government policy and government spending, because even though I'm mostly focused on private sector initiatives right now, and there's a reason, because I think we can get more done quickly there and time is not on our side. So even though that's what I do, 
what's way more important in the grand scheme of things is you know, public policy and government spending. But it's difficult, unfortunately. So here we are in the United States. Well, that's where I am. We've elected a president, President Biden, who ran first presidential candidate in a long time to run with such a priority on climate progress. With the barest margin, we have a Democratic House and a 50-50 Democratic Senate. And so then political reality intrudes. So we see now President Biden with two big bills, the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill. As we speak, they're like in negotiations on Capitol Hill. We don't know what the outcome will be. Both of those bills include a lot of very important climate measures, in my view. For example, huge incentives for the utilities sector to deliver more and more clean energy every year. Financial penalties for methane leakage. Tax incentives for purchases of electric vehicles, and so on. And, you know, I don't want to be negative, but my point of view would be, let's take all of that. Right now in the United States, it's really hard to pass legislation and have legislative wins. So you have to kind of embed this stuff in other bills, and you've got to try to build the vote. Do it in a way that you can get the votes you want. Most environmentalists, and for me, market-oriented environmentalists, and I was in this group for the longest time, thought we should have a price on carbon. By far, that's the most important thing, a high price on carbon that would rise over time. I think it's true in all economic theory, and most economists agree, that would be the best way to address these externalities, have a level playing field, leave the government out of these big decisions to make about who the winners and losers should be, and on and on and on. However, there seems to be very little political support for such an initiative in the United States. And it also seems like it's a very difficult thing to do anywhere else in the world. So we have to be realists. Like, I think we have to keep pushing for that because I actually think we ultimately do need that, but time's not on our side. So then in the meantime, if we can achieve progress in these other ways, you could call it industrial policy, I'm for it. And then we have to remember the Glasgow Climate Cup is late next month. And it will be a difficult meeting, I think, for the United States. These bills don't pass. And then back to the private sector. So then what, what's the private sector's role here? I think this is beginning to get a little more traction. But even when I was at TNC, I always argued this. To a company who was doing a lot of impressive stuff, I would always say, okay, now Mr. or Ms. CEO, you've got to make these issues in your lobbying efforts just as important. And I don't think we got very far, but that's beginning to change. So anyway, government policy is hugely important. Uh, these two pending Biden bills are really going to be revealing if they pass. There's a lot of good climate stuff there and more than we've ever had in the U.S. If they fail, it's going to be really a big setback to near-term climate progress, certainly in the U.S., but I think it would be even worse than that. So the stakes are very high. We've just spoken about the United States now let's move over to China. Now, I know the Biden administration recently appointed uh, John Kerry as the uh, U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. And you are a member of the China Council for International Cooperation on Environment and Development. And so I wanted to hear your views on uh, U.S.-China cooperation, especially regarding climate and climate finance. Uh, what yeah. are your thoughts about it? I mean, some of this goes beyond environmental matters. So China's relations with the U.S. and China's relations with Europe are more difficult now than they had been. It mostly probably reflects China's rise as a superpower, their interest in being the most important superpower in their region, whereas Europe and the U.S. would prefer that you know, that not be the case. And then there are specific policies within China that, of course, are upsetting to people in the West. So most of that doesn't have anything to do with the environment. It'd be foolish to pretend it resolving those matters will be easy. It will not be easy. This is going to dominate 
diplomacy and international relations over the period ahead. But when we turn our attention to climate, we have no choice but to engage. China is the biggest emitter today, and it's only going to grow. I admire Secretary Kerry. We worked very closely together when he was Secretary of State. And, you know, I'm not an expert in diplomacy. I think his efforts are good ones. Let's be delighted that President Xi announced last week they'll no longer finance overseas coal plants. It's actually a nice win. But I think the big problem here is China isn't going to listen to the U.S. or anybody else when they determine how they're going to do important things in these areas. And when we look further ahead, India will be the same thing. These government leaders have their hands full. They need continued economic growth. They need to lift people out of poverty. They have, as we were talking about in the case of China, you know, other international relation concerns. So it's not like we can tell them what to do in the U.S. And by the way, what we've done in the U.S. isn't very impressive. It's true we're no longer the biggest emitter in the world in the U.S., but we're by far the biggest per capita emitter in the world. And we're the biggest historic emitter, blah, blah, blah. So what do we do? How do we? It, it's a huge problem. How do we get the world to cooperate? I think if I were like, you know, the president of the United States, or even better, if I was somehow had like a king of some country, I'd say, let's act unilaterally. I think there's a limit to what you can cooperatively or collaboratively negotiate. Let's see what we can do unilaterally. So if I had a magic wand, I would have a high price on carbon that would go up over time. It would be a regressive tax, et cetera. So you could address that though. You could make it fair for your citizens. That would be a game changer, of course, right? In my country, the country of Mark. Then I would say to China, especially China, who's such an important trading partner, okay, going forward, now that we're doing this, you have a choice. You can do the same thing, in which case we'll be delighted to continue to buy stuff from China. However, you don't do it, we're going to impose a border tax, a high one. It's going to be just as high as our carbon tax, because otherwise our producers will be at a disadvantage. And then China would have to say, well, we can pay that tax and let America get that money, or we can just do it ourselves. And so my big thought here is there's a limit to what can be gained through this cooperative job boning diplomacy. And what you need is leadership in your own home country, followed by some, you know, a stick and the stick would come through trade policy. And I think we'll hear more and more about that because already even in these Biden bills, there's talk of a carbon adjustment tax and we barely have good climate policy here in the U.S. So that's how I think we have to do it. I don't think China has been particularly villainous, personally, on the climate front. It's extraordinary what they've done in terms of lifting people out of poverty. And of course, they did so taking advantage of the lowest cost energy sources, just like the United States and Europe did. Oh, the other thing I would say about the leaders in China, because you're right, I had a lot of engagement there over the years. As far as I can tell, all of the leaders in the, in the government have technical backgrounds in science or engineering. There's no one ever suggests anything like climate denial. Rather, they're trying to solve problems in a way that makes sense, but is also consistent with their economic growth ideas. One other thought then. So therefore, if in the U.S. or the West or anywhere, we can keep innovating and show that the low carbon or the decarbonizing business opportunity is the one that also makes the most economic sense. China and India will be delighted to follow those examples. Again, that's where the private sector comes in with the government's help, I hope. If we can keep innovating, keep showing there are ways to decarbonize that are economic winners, China and India, they'll be delighted to do that, of course. 
So to draw the link with international relations and uh, developing countries, I know in COP26, they're trying to get uh, over $100 billion uh, towards these developing countries. But to draw back on your experience with uh, NatureVest at TNC, you guys had a concept, debt for nature swap. And uh, my mother's from Mauritius. Uh, yes. Mauritius is a neighbor with Seychelles. And I was really impressed with the project with Seychelles where uh, you guys were able to do a debt for nature uh, swap deal. Uh, I believe it was 22 million came from TNC and 5 million or so came from the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. And you guys were able to protect over 30% of the country. I hope this happens in Mauritius, FYI. But could you tell us more about the debt for nature swap concept and what are the possibilities with it? Well, thank you for being aware of that. I am proud of that structure that we originated while I was at TNC. And these deals remain a priority for the Nature Conservancy today. It was in the news recently that they're working with the country of Belize on a comparable deal. It's a little bit complicated, but it kind of goes like this. You want to provide capital to any coastal country. We mentioned a few smaller kind of island countries, but it could work for any coastal country, especially, you know, a developing one that lacks capital to otherwise do it. And so you want to provide capital in a careful way to make it possible to create marine protected areas, to make sure that they work for local fishing communities, to make sure that they're well enforced, et cetera. It's pretty easy to get people to agree to do things like that uh, in response to money, but it is not so easy to ensure they really do it over time. And then that's one problem. How do you ensure compliance? The second problem is where is the money going to come from? Because it starts to get expensive. So in the case of the Seychelles or in other places, there are non-local government debt trades in the open market. And from time to time, it can be bought at a great discount in the marketplace. And we might also be able to incentivize the institutions that hold that debt to be friendly negotiators with someone like the Nature Conservancy. So I'm going to talk about it in general rather than the specifics. So the idea would be someone like the Nature Conservancy goes to country A that has the opportunity to accelerate and scale marine protection and also has this debt I described that maybe is trading at a discount. And so you say, listen, we're going to provide you a lot of capital for a marine protected area plan and the capital to enforce it. We're going to make it sure it works for your local people, but we're going to do it in a kind of complicated way to ensure you do what you promise. The capital is only going to be dribbled out over time as you perform. And the way we're going to create the capital is we're going to go buy your debt that's out there in the marketplace right now at a discount. We'll need new capital to do that, but we'll try to raise the new capital with, say, a World Bank guarantee or something like that. So debt is on your books at $100 million, and you buy that debt at $75 million back. You've reduced your debt by $25 million. Furthermore, if you have a World Bank guarantee for the new debt, your interest rate comes down from whatever high rate it had been to the World Bank's debt level. So you take all that capital you create, you put it in a trust that is not controlled by that government, but it's very transparent. And as the government does what it promised to do, the money flows from the trust to the government. Finally, you need some donations to make this whole thing work, right? Who's going to do all that work? You go to a philanthropist and you say, look, please provide us the capital for the team of people who will do this work. And we'll then lever that up through this recapitalization of the country's debt and it's a powerful way to kind of turbocharge philanthropy. So it's a great structure. Now, what's what's hard about it? Well, it's very, very complicated. 
It takes a lot of negotiation. It works best when you have those favorable circumstances I described about where the debt is trading, et cetera. But there's a ton of opportunity. I think we'll see more and more of that. A COVID might have slowed things down a little bit because this kind of work requires like getting out there and meeting with people. But I bet we'll see more and more of it over the period ahead. That's a great example, by the way, you asked earlier about financial innovation. I mean, I don't have all the ideas. TNC today has a lot of great ideas, but not all of them. The, the environmental world needs to think like this. How can you get more done faster by innovating? And by the way, can we borrow from the private sector strategies that you know maybe tweaked a little bit can work in the environmental arena? Uh, thank you, Mark. I wish there was more awareness in the environment and the financial community of all these different models that could be applied. Uh, one interesting thing I found in your book, uh, Nature's Fortune, was the concept of an endowment fund for water. And you had a case study for Ecuador. Could you elaborate on that, please? It's a comparable idea. And by the way, thank you for reading my book. I really appreciate that. But basically, you had downstream users of water. Sometimes they would be agricultural communities and big players or beverage companies. And so, of course, if you're in either business, agriculture or beverage, you're concerned about water, your water supply, both the quantity and the quality of that water. And then a kind of a classic TNC perspective would be, you know, don't build a big plant to clean water when it becomes dirty. Rather, go upstream and intervene through nature to keep beautiful, clean water clean, and also to get all these environmental benefits and community benefits for free. So how to pay for it. So the idea then would be you organize the downstream users of water. It could be a municipality. It could be beverage companies. It could be agricultural communities. You, you persuade them to make these investments upstream, for example, reforestation or shifting cattle grazing away from rivers, these kinds of things. And then we would argue, and we've used good science and business sense to do this, this will be a lower cost way to ensure you've got the quantity and quality of water that you seek. Plus, you'll have all these environmental benefits. So TNC had some great success there. But the problem with that was, though, the payers were paying as they go. And so then I said, well, can we borrow against that stream of payments like you would in the private sector again? So you have all the capital up front, the present value of those payments, so that you can do those interventions in a hurry, because we have to move in a big way. So that's the notion. And the, the practice of that methodology continues. By the way, the Nature Conservancy didn't invent it. And I talk about this at length in the book. We basically stole that idea from New York City. New York City is famous for its delicious water. And it's still today, mostly not filtered in any way. New York City, some brilliant civil servants did that a couple of decades ago now, upstream, protected nature to ensure they had clean, healthy water. That's a great example of investing in nature. I think the water situation in New York is also a good example of why the pizza is so good, as you mentioned in your book. Yes. So now let's move on to uh, philanthropy and uh, blended finance. I know you wrote an article about the Bezos Earth Fund, but how can we maximize the flow and the impact of philanthropy? I mean, I've seen the given pledge, but whenever I scroll through, I see most of these folks haven't uh, given up uh, yeah. 50% of their wealth. And there's some interesting models like Brave Energy Ventures or Prime Coalition, but we need uh, more of those. Yeah. I don't spend as much time with donors as I used to. So I'm not sure I'm an expert. I'm pretty encouraged. There seems to be a new sense of urgency in philanthropic circles. And so you see uh, the best example of this, speaking of Jeff Bezos, would be his former wife, Mackenzie Scott. They got divorced, so she became one of the world's wealthiest people. And she's giving capital away, making donations to a variety of nonprofits, including environmental ones, fast, at size, and with very few restrictions. I think one mistake donors make, it's not always a mistake, but I think in general it is, is they like to provide capital to nonprofits with a lot of strings attached. 
and I can see why it sounds good. They want to design the project. They want to restrict how much they goes to what they call is overhead, et cetera. But when I would compare that model to the private sector, I'd say, well, the private sector doesn't do that. When Apple Computer, I mean, they make so much money now, it's a bad example. But if you look back to their earlier days when they had to raise capital, people didn't provide it with all these strings attached. They invested in equity or they invested in debt, or like Tesla would be a more recent example. So one thing I would say to donors is try not to spend as much time telling the NGO what to do. That's the NGO's job. Your job is to provide capital and give them the breathing room they need to be a great organization. I'm pretty encouraged that that trend is underway. The Bezos Earth Fund will be exciting to watch. It's led by Andrew Steer, my friend, the former head of the World Resources Institute. He's superb. One thing I said to Andrew is, though, I would also have more transparency. So another problem in the nonprofit world is nobody really knows what's going on. It drove me crazy at TNC. When I worked at Goldman Sachs, I ran the IPO business. I would say to CEOs, listen, you've got to go on a roadshow for two weeks. And the CEOs would usually say, oh, I'm too busy for that. I'd say, well, tough. You've got to go on the roadshow for two weeks and meet your investors. You'll learn a lot. But after the roadshow, everybody will want you to go back to work and run your company. We don't want you to go see investors anymore. Then I joined the Nature Conservancy and I said, wow, my, my roadshow is every day of the year. It never stops because... Now, think of the differences. When you pick a company you want to evaluate, Tesla, you can read about it in the Wall Street Journal. You can see it on CNBC. You can read analyst reports. You can look at its stock price every day. It's, there's so much information available to you. Now, uh, consider your favorite nonprofit. You have none of that. It's like a black hole. All you really have is the nonprofit bragging about what it does, which is not really the kind of disclosure I have in mind. So I think more transparent disclosure would really help, and donors could insist on that. Um, and then blended finance, if you're as rich as Jeff Bezos or Mackenzie Scott, you don't really need to worry about blended finance. They have so much capital to go away. But sooner or later, with most donors, I'm a little bit of a philanthropist, but I don't have enough money to be like them. So I'm interested in these blended finance strategies so that my dollars lever more dollars into the program so that more can get done. So these are all approaches. I'm actually pretty encouraged. I think those trends are underway. And and I think the NGOs, the users of the capital, they should be bolder about asking for capital on that basis rather than with all the strings attached. Uh, when we look at the financing gap, I read a research from Stanford that said it's between 300 and 400 billion, but uh, also one article you wrote on the instigator regarding biodiversity finance is between 600 and 800 billion. One of the ways that we could narrow down this gap is possibly uh, through the private sector with uh, voluntary carbon offsets. Since you are a member of the task force for getting voluntary carbon markets, could you tell us your thoughts about how we could scale it up to faster rate? It's a like great question again, Jonas. Man, where I would start is the need for carbon removal. So a lot of environmentalists, if you believe what you read in the newspaper, are nervous about carbon offsets. But we'll distinguish offsets into two camps. There's avoided emissions and there's carbon removal. Uh, a lot of environmentalists are nervous. They say, well, if people can buy those things, offsets, removals, or uh, avoided emissions, that will, that will disincentivize them from reducing their emissions. So there's a little bit of a bias against this. Furthermore, when they look at those critics, look at nature-based solutions, they say, wait a second, this doesn't even really work. Like if you plant a new forest to remove carbon from the atmosphere, which would happen, but that forest catches on fire, perhaps because of climate change, then the carbon removal goes away. So, And there are such 
challenges with removals. There's a permanence challenge, there's an additionality challenge, et cetera. So I don't want to pretend any of this is simple on the one hand. On the other hand, when you read the IPCC's report, they're crystal clear. Even if we achieve what was promised at Paris, and we're nowhere close to achieving those emission reductions, but even if we were, the IPCC is crystal clear, we will also need carbon removal. Now, my view, we're in the race of our lives with climate change. Time is not on our side. Plus, the race is going poorly. We keep saying it, and we'll say it again at the Glasgow Cup. Everybody's going to pledge to reduce emissions, but we never reduce emissions as much as we pledge country by country. I hope that will change, but it hasn't changed yet. And then when it comes to carbon removal, there's this reluctance by some to pursue it. I say it's absolutely clear we need high quality carbon removal, whether it's through nature or through technology. I agree with the critics. There are a lot of risks here that have to be addressed. There are risks in everything that have to be addressed. This is just one more area where we have room for improvement. So I say, let's accelerate it. Let's not wait. Let's encourage companies, for example, to buy carbon removals as part of their net zero plans. And now what about this matter? Well, will that discourage them from reducing emissions? What we want them to do is move toward net zero at the fastest rate possible. That's what the atmosphere wants. The atmosphere doesn't care whether it's via removal or emission reduction. And then I would argue the likely fastest way for that to happen is to do it in the lowest cost possible. And so if carbon removal on a high quality basis is much more expensive for one company than emission reduction, they will do emission reduction. But if you're in a business where it's very difficult for you to reduce emissions right now, but you want to make progress toward net zero, you would buy removals. Finally, if we could unleash this demand for removals, I think we would see a lot of innovation. New ways to achieve removals would be achieved and costs would come down, which is something we need. We need that innovation and cost reduction on emission reduction, but we also need it with regard to carbon removals. Final comment, uh, what about avoided emissions? So like the Nature Conservancy does projects like this, and I'm for them. We want the world's great standing forest to be protected because they sequester carbon and they also harbor biodiversity. They're so important. I agree. The only problem, though, is paying for those projects isn't equivalent to moving toward net zero. So we just have to accept those two approaches need to be distinguished. Oh, and then you also ask, is this a way to raise capital for protecting nature? Absolutely. Imagine if we unleashed great demand for nature-based solutions like that. That is the equivalent of ensuring there'll be more and more dollars flowing into nature. Uh, to increase the amount of dollars flowing towards nature, I want to piggyback on your 24 years at Goldman Sachs since you interacted with a lot of uh, institutional investors. I read a report from uh, Irena the International Renewable Energy Agency and institutional investors accounted for less than 1% of renewable energy investments in 2020. I wanted to know your thoughts about how, if you were to advise the heads of all these sovereign wealth funds or these big institutional investment funds, what would you advise them? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I don't want to be glib, but none of this is easy. Um, the first thought that comes to mind is we need the policies that will ensure that renewable energy can thrive in today's world. But we've observed what's happened in solar and wind with government support, of course, very importantly on the IRD side and the tax incentive side. We have that momentum behind us. We see progress underway with batteries, et cetera. We see all these big funds now addressing climate solutions, TPG, Brookfield, General Atlantic, and so on. So things are changing. What else could be done? I think it would be good. And the financial sector is working on this. I think it's kind of complicated as if we should hold companies accountable toward making progress to net zero. 
the ones who've said they're going to do it, and then we should go after the ones who haven't said it and get them to do it. I think we have to hold institutional investors accountable in the same way. It's going to get a little tricky, though, because um, in a lot of the discussion of this stuff, this is what my next instigator is about. People want to pretend, it seems to me, that there can be so much innovation through private sector engagement that decarbonization will not be more expensive. But I don't think that's true. Yes, in solar and wind, it's happened. That's great. But there was a lot of government support behind there. And so as people focus, as we hold companies or investor, institutional investors accountable for doing more of this stuff, I think in turn, there's going to be a greater appreciation for how urgent it is we have the government public policy that will facilitate all of this. Because businesses can't just keep raising costs indefinitely. That's what not how the incentives work. And investors can't just invest on a do-good basis. They've got to earn returns. Those institutional investors you're talking about, they have the moral responsibility of taking care of those pensioners who are counting on those dollars for their savings and as in retirement. So I think there's room for more kind of reality-based thinking about the costs. And, and, and then we can ask the question, how are we going to achieve these costs? What public policy do we need? By the way, I think this discussion will also illuminate how important it is we invest in carbon removal. One of my views as to why institutional investors are not as engaged as they should be in uh, climate-related investments is because there are not enough fund managers focusing on that. And I know you're an advisor to many different funds, and I think uh, you're supporting a new fund called uh, Regen Ventures. What advice would you give to emerging managers, first-time funds, who want to get into the climate space? Well, it's a great opportunity. It's easy to be super nervous and concerned about the climate outlook um, on the one hand. On the other hand, then, it's also easy to imagine, boy, well, this is like the biggest business opportunity in the history of humankind, uh, solving the climate crisis. So especially if I were a young institutional investor person, you know, just entering in the business, I can't imagine another area that will provide such a rewarding career and so many important opportunities to think through. And sometimes, you know, people worry like, oh, maybe this is just a bubble, all this interest in climate investing. There probably is a little bit of that right now. But unlike other bubbles, this one can't go away because as we see the reality of climate change, we have to address it every day. So this isn't going to go away. I think the most important thing for investors to do is to just focus on reality and to be aware of the opportunity for innovation too, but not to just like wish that good things will happen or wish that economic players won't behave on an economic way. I don't think that's going to happen. You've got to think hard about where can businesses invest in climate solutions in a way that will make us money as an investor? Of course, dollars should flow to those opportunities. And I think mostly they are. Then you say, okay, now what are the remaining tough sectors that need to decarbonize, but we can't see a way to do it on a commercially attractive basis. That's then where the government, I think, needs to step in one way or another to ensure that that will happen. You can't just wish that away. So reality-based thinking is what I would argue for. So we're reaching the end of this interview. And the last question I want to ask you, Mark, is what would be your advice to the next Mark Tersek? So the person at Goldman who wants to make the transition, I know that all the investment banks have raised their entry-level salaries. 
So I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad incentive, but should they go into public policy? Should they try to start an investment fund? What, what advice would you give? You're very nice to ask that question. Yeah, I feel so fortunate when I look back and it was a bunch of kind of lucky breaks and on the one hand, and then me maybe taking some risks on the other hand, allowed me to build this really interesting career. I'm so grateful. And it didn't happen by myself. A lot of people helped me. My takeaway would be that more people should consider opportunities outside their domain along these lines. You know, young people often ask me like, hey, if I want to be an environmentalist, should I join an NGO? No, they're just, they're just graduating from college or grad school. Should I join an NGO? Should I join the private sector? Should I join the government? I mean, there's no general answer. They should do the thing that they think will be the best fit for them and provide them a lot of learning. But what, if you choose one of those three, it doesn't mean you need to be doing those three forever. So if you joined an NGO and, and really learned a lot about environmental problem solving the NGO way, I can imagine those, that skill set would be very helpful to private equity people who are trying to do the same. I was the opposite. I was a guy who had Wall Street experience and brought that to the NGO world. So I think more silo crossing would be good. And then second, people used to always tease me at TNC or criticize me for not being a good listener. And I agree with the criticism. I should be a better listener and I'm trying. But even though I might not have been the best listener, I, I did learn early in my professional life, that don't pretend you know things you don't know and look for help. And so uh, what I observe is people who are really good here are open to input from a variety of players. So if you're at solving climate, Think of what's needed. You got to be pretty savvy politically. What's doable? Don't give me a pie in the sky idea. Give me one that is feasible in today's political environment. You've got to really be good at the science and the engineering. You have to be pretty good at, at financing strategies. Uh, how do you motivate people? Well, we talked a little bit about how do you disclose this stuff in ways that are comparable financial statements. None of those things are easy. Different types of expertise are required to address those things. So that's important. And then I think the last thing I would say is listen to your critics. Here, I think, while I was at TNC, we did a good job. So a lot of the things we talked about on this call were criticized because at first it sounded to traditional conservationists like, this is crazy stuff. Why is this guy from Wall Street making us partner with Dow Chemical or something like that? It's a fair question. But we had a good answer, I thought. Here's why. These are the things that we propose we will accomplish. But don't take our word for it. We're going to disclose everything, every step of the way. And if you see us falling short or doing something bad, by all means, criticize us. You might see something that we missed. And we want what you want. You know, We're both pursuing environmental goals. So I say at TNC, our critics are our friends. And I think that's a pretty good sort of uh, mentality for environmental problem solving. Be humble. Listen to your critics. Collaborate. Think. Aim big. And if you do all that, I think it's a way to build a joyous life. I like that quote, critics are our friends. On that note, uh, thank you very much, Mark. I really learned a lot, and I bet the listeners will learn a lot from this interview. Have a great day. Thank you very much, Jonas. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat www.climatefinance.xyz See you at the next episode.